Our sermon text this morning will be from Romans 1, 1 through 7, and 16 and 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So there's this comic strip, and here's what it Here's how it went. Those who do not study history are doomed to repeat it. And yet those who do study history are doomed to stand by helplessly while everyone else repeats it. Now that's kind of a parody on that old, that American philosopher George Santayana, which says that um, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Um, studying history matters. I, I want you to know that history is, is exceedingly important. Each year I do a biography. A biography. Uh, that's a tough way to get out of the gate, I'll tell you that. We can only go downhill from here. I do a biography on a saint. And, um, and the reason we look back at the saints of old is because it's helpful to us. It's helpful to see people who God uses for his glory and purposes, imperfect saints. And it's humbling to us because everything that we see is kind of new and cool. We find out that, you know what, it isn't always so new. And it also protects us. When we look back in history, we can hopefully avoid some of the mistakes that have already been made repeatedly. And then last, I think it's refreshing because what it does is it shows us that God is doing a great work across times and places and spaces. It's not just what we're doing in this time and place. God has a great colossal plan going on. Now this year, I'm not going to do an individual. I'm going to do a movement. I want to explain to you what the Reformation is. We use that term all the time, the Reformation. Well, what does that mean? So you don't need to take notes. You can sit back and just relax. If you want the transcript, I'll send it to you. I just want to kind of create a category for you of how God worked in a very unique way in a unique time. This is the Reformation. The Reformation was simply this. It was a 16th century movement that was religious and intellectual and cultural. It, it, it literally upended Europe. So Philip Schaff is a noted historian. He said the Reformation of the 16th century is, next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. It marks the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modern times. So this is the Reformation. It occurs in the 16th century 
in the 1500s. Names that are associated with it, which you've heard about, are Martin Luther, a man by the name of Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, Henry VIII, Erasmus. These are names that may not be known to you, but I'm telling you, you're going to find that they're key names in the history of our world. So the Reformation, most people dated to October 31, 1517. In other words, this October 31 will be the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And on this date, uh, Martin Luther, who was a priest, nails 95 theses or propositions and questions to the door of a church in, in, we say, Wittenberg. The Germans would say Wittenberg. And he nails it to the door. Now listen, Martin Luther, was his original intention uh, was simply to start a dialogue about purifying the church. What ended up happening was it was the start of the Protestant Reformation. It's huge. It would, cha- it would change the face of Europe forever. The Reformation didn't stay on the continent. It moved across the channel to England and Scotland, and then ultimately and in time, it came to us. Now, you can't imagine, you know, we'll speak about the religious implications of the, the uh, Reformation. The political and the economic and the social implications, we are all living in the midst of its wake, and we don't even know. It has had a tremendous impact on all of Western civilization. So what I want to do is I just want to start about the time. This is, this is the context in which the Reformation occurred, and then we're going to look at some of the players in it, and then we'll look at some implications. So what are the contexts? Like, what was the environment? If you were to go to sleep tonight, and you were to wake up, and you go out the door, and your front door, and you, you hit 15, 17, here's what you would have seen. Life would have been challenging for you. Life would have been marked by darkness, spiritually, and a lot of death, a lot of death. You know, the, the, the thousand years between 500 A.D. and 1500 A.D., you know, 1500 AD what we call the, the Dark Ages or the, or the Middle Ages, it, it was like, as one professor said, it was a thousand years without a bath. I, I mean, illiteracy was high, death was high, the average age was maybe 35, many people died before they were 15. If you lived to 50, you were quite unique. The, the two twin powers that were controlling the, the, per, you know, the, um, the feelings of people were famine and plague. Famine and plague. They, they happened repeatedly. In, in the 14th century, a famine, you know, rains don't come in. No, we don't even think about that. We've got freezers, electricity, grocery stores. Rains don't come in. Guess what? Close to a quarter of Europe was lost. They just died. This is hundreds of thousands of people. The Black Death, bubonic plague, that was just probably 80 years after the famine. As many as a third to half of Europe died. That's half of our group, just gone. And they're gone in a number of years. So people were living with this weightiness of death that was just pressing them. And this idea of... um, you know, of burying, every family buried a child or two. So you just, you imagine the pain and the struggle people would have been going through. There was no medicines, as we know it. There were no hospitals. They didn't understand germ theory. They they didn't get disease. There was nothing they could do. It was as if they just had to take it as it came in, wave upon wave. Okay, so that was the physical situation. Very dire, very difficult. 
But the political situation was in upheaval, right? It was move, moving from a feudal state around a, a landowner with, with servants and peasants, and it was moving more to a nation state. Nationalism was starting to rise. Uh, they were starting to reject papal authority, begin to question it. You have the introduction of exploration. Just 20 years before this date, Columbus discovered the New World. Recently, on this date, Copernicus you know, brought forth that heliocentrism, that the sun was the center of the universe and not the earth. These were wild times. And, and you, you think about it, but even in our political uncertainties, even in our day, you know how it rattles your pans? You, know, you think about something like this, this major transitioning, shifting of authority structures. But not just political, also social changes were taking place. You know, wealth was moving from land to commercial and to banking. A middle class was beginning to rise. Universities and learning were beginning to grow at an increased rate. Remember, you had the Turks. They were about to besiege Constantinople, and it's called the Flight of the Scholars, because many of the scholars with Latin and Greek parchments and, and the ancient documents left Constantinople and went in and filled the European universities. This is what we call the Renaissance, back to the sources. So now we're beginning to discover these ancient writings, and out of this comes the publication of the Greek New Testament by a man by the name of Erasmus. This is going to be huge. It's going to be, they say, that his production, his publication of the Greek New Testament is going to hatch the Reformation. It was a big time. The printing press was less than 100 years old. I mean, that was a huge issue because now people had a voice to the community outside the institutional centers of learning. So now you can disseminate information. Popular opinion can change at a remarkably high rate. So these were in incredibly fast-moving, changing times but then the religious context. So if you were going to walk out the door in 1517, you'd have been dominated by the Church of Rome. It wasn't called the Church of Rome because there was no other church. So, so they didn't need a name to differentiate it because there was nothing else existing. It was the church with papal authority that governed the life of the people. There were political leaders as well, as we're going to see, Emperor Charles, but, but, but the pope dominated thinking. The Roman Catholic Church dominated the life of people. And it was not without its problems. There were great abuse. The biblical ignorance was profound. Remember this, the, the mass was done in Latin. That's the language of academia. So people didn't understand it. You'd walk into a church, they had no pews, you would just stand there. And they would speak the mass in Latin. They didn't preach, but maybe on Advent and Easter. No regular preaching. Uh, many of the priests didn't even understand the Latin that they were saying when they were doing the Mass. Not just that, you couldn't read the Bible. You didn't have the Bible. And if you had a Bible, it'd be in Latin and you couldn't read it. It wasn't read to you. Nobody knew. You had priests that had never read the New Testament. And they're performing the, the ritualistic, you know, the, the Mass and praying to the saints and venerating Mary and and that was just the time, so people were absolutely ignorant. But then you also had this questioning abuse of the papal authority. At some points in the thousand years before the Reformation, there were two popes. Sometimes there were three popes, and they were giving indictments one to the other. The moral corruption among the priests, 
you know, we, we think and we do have an issue. You know, it's been of late the problem with, with uh, Catholic priests and child uh, uh, pedophilia. One city in Germany had 378 cases of Ill- Ill- illegitimate children brought to the bishop from priests. I mean, the moral corruption was profound. So I want you to feel that these times are desperate. People, by the way, weren't turning against religion. Religion was very, very central to the life, but it was giving them no hope. The gospel was completely buried. Nobody understood the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would perform the rituals. They would pray to the saints. They would light candles. They would dutifully go to church, but nobody understood. It was just a time of dark, of dark spiritual, uh, well, spiritual darkness. Okay, so now I want you to know, though, that there, before this Reformation on 1517, there were voices calling for reform. Even the Franciscans and the Dominicans, these are two orders in the Catholic Church that tried to return back to a simpler worship. You have the conciliatory movement, which is trying to move some of the authority away from the Pope back to the councils like the early church did in the first three and four centuries. There were some movements being made, but none gained traction. You've heard of the name of John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe was a, uh, an English professor at Oxford, member of the royal family. He began to make some of the noises that Martin Luther would make 100 years later. Listen to what he wrote about the nature of Scripture being uniquely authoritative. He says, Holy Scripture is the highest authority for every believer, the standard of faith and the foundation for reform in religious, political, and social life. In itself, it is perfectly sufficient for salvation without the addition of customs or traditions such as canon law, prayers to the saints, fasting, pilgrimages, or the Mass. So here he is. He's getting right on sola scriptura, that scripture alone saves. He also said this about about justification by faith. He says, trust wholly in Christ. Rely altogether on his sufferings. Beware of seeking to be justified in any other way than by his righteousness. Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. There must be atonement made for sin according to the righteousness of God. The person to make this atonement must be God and man. Now, this is John Wycliffe. He then dies. He's controversial. He hits a lot of persecution. He dies. And then what they do in 1415, they exhume his bones and they go burn him. This is the the level of anger that the church felt threatened. We're going to dig up a dead man and burn him. They did that. And in the same year, they burned John Huss. John Huss was another, uh, John Wycliffe was called the Morning Star of the Reformation. So his voice is going out, not gaining traction. John Huss, a Czech from Bohemia, he is also burned at the stake for having the same, but he was alive when they burned him. But note what he says when he's about to die. His name is John Huss. He says this, he says, you may roast this goose. Now his name Huss means goose in Czech. He says, you may roast this goose, But a hundred years from now, a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. A hundred years almost to the day, Martin Luther begins to publish his doctrine of the justification by faith alone. 
And after Martin Luther died, then Lutheran churches would often have swans in their weather vanes. Just to show, you know, God is at work here. And, and the voices of reform were starting, but they weren't gaining traction until Martin Luther. He was the spark that ignited the Reformation. So what happens? In fact, he's the third most so when you look at, if you Google, number of different sites in terms of the most important events in the last thousand years. Number one, the, the most important event seen by um, historians is the invention of the printing press. It's incredible. That's how much of an impact it's had. The third most important historical personage is Martin Luther. Martin Luther more than Darwin, Shakespeare, Columbus, Marx, Einstein, Copernicus, Da Vinci, George Washington... Mao Zedong, or even Elvis Presley or Beatles, they made the list too, but they were way, way down. Okay, Luther, he was an Augustinian monk. He was a lecturer in theology. He grew up having a very tender spiritual conscience, easily prone to doubt and struggle. Father wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, there was an event, and you can read about it later, in terms of uh, lightning storm, he, prays to St. Anne, he commits himself to the monastery, he goes, he becomes a priest. They see his remarkable intelligence, they send him to seminary, they train, he becomes a doctor in theology. And it was in 1515, while he was studying the Psalms in particular, Psalm 32, Romans in particular, chapter 1, and Galatians, that he comes to the, the recovery of the gospel. So what he finds, see, what Martin Luther struggled with is, how in the world... Can any of us who have been stained by sin approach a God that is so immensely holy, just as Miguel was praying, so other in terms of his holiness, how could we, with our stain of sin, ever approach a God like that? And, and, and the Catholic Church answer is, go to Mass and go to confession and pray to the saints and, and, and fast and make a pilgrimage and all these little means of grace that they offered. And he knew you can't do it. And he would beat himself to try to become pure enough that maybe I can come before God. But the more he understood about God's glory, the more he realized it's impossible. Then he found the righteousness of Christ. He found the righteousness of Christ. And I'll explain this in just a minute. But, but he found that I can come before God in Christ's righteousness. Well, that blew his mind open all kinds of doors. So he moves now to start to seek to reform the church. He didn't want to start a new church. As I said, there was no other church. Like around here, if we don't like it, you go to another church. There was no other place to go to. And so he posts these 95 theses on the door. And he puts them there. And it's really for, what he's trying to do is start a debate about the abuses of the Catholic Church, particularly these indulgences. That was the main focus of his indulgences, or of his... Um, posting the 95 Thesis, what indulgences were, were these. The indulgences were really an invention of the church, whereby you could do good works, and it would help you get out of purgatory faster. Purgatory is a doctrine of the Catholic Church that after you die, no one can just go right from death to heaven, because you have these unconfessed sins. You have these unforgiven sins, and you have to go to a place called purgatory, and purgatory, you would be there for a while until you suffered for those sins, a temporal punishment. And only then could you go see God. And what indulgences were, were it's good works that you would do, which would get you out of purgatory faster. 
There's all kinds of theological problems with that. But let me just press on. In Martin's time, Martin Luther's time, indulgences took on a new twist. The twist was that you could give money to buy indulgences to get people out of purgatory faster. So for a sum of money, it would bring complete forgiveness of past and or future sins. It promised absolution without contrition or without true repentance. You could literally just buy satisfaction of sins with money. Now this was immensely effective in terms of raising money as they wanted to start building churches, in particular St. Uh, Peter's, the Basilica in Rome. It was immensely, I mean, money was coming in because if you would be told that you wouldn't have to suffer in purgatory. Now remember, they had never read the New Testament. They, they didn't have the understanding that even a basic Christian would have of the gospel. And so they're listening to their superiors, they're listening to the trained people, and they're following them blindly. Well, one man that was a master at raising money was John Tetzel. He was a priest from Rome, and he was sent to go around to the various cities, and he was in Germany at this point, to sell these indulgences, to raise this money, to build this church. And here's the way he would preach. This is from one of his sermons. And he's, you, you just hear him pulling on the hearts of people. He says this, he says, Listen to the voices of your dead loved ones, relatives and friends beseeching you, saying, Pity us, pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Do you not wish to? We bore you. We nourished you, we brought you up and left you our fortunes, and yet you are so cruel and hard that now you're not willing to, for so little, set us free? Will you let us lie here in the flames? And then he would say to them, remember that you were able to release them. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. They get out of purgatory. Now, I mean, there's no TV evangelist that can hold a candle to this guy. I, I mean, it was incredible. So Luther sees this, and he puts these theses on the door of the church. And what that was, it was like a bulletin board. You would see all kinds of notices. But again, Luther was not looking to create division. He posted those theses in Latin. That was the language of academia. He wasn't looking to go public with it. He wanted to have a scholarly debate about the abuses of the church, so as to bring reform. But his students took those and translated them into German, and then through the printing press, sent them all over Germany. Within two years, 300,000 copies were distributed. Incredible. Well, I tell you, Luther quickly, because the rising nationalism already present in Germany, all of a sudden shot him up. This was the shot heard around the world, right here. And it, and it, set, it set the fire to this dry wood. Pope Leo, the current pope at that time, uh, had no idea what forces were unleashed. Because what he said was, when he heard this, he said he's a drunken German who will change his mind when he's sober. Boy, he could not have missed that any further. Well, this all of a sudden began now bringing him into confrontation with Rome itself. He began to produce more and more writings on the priesthood of believers, on the sacramental system and its, and its falsity, as well as um, the um, justification by faith alone. 
So, so Rome, what they do is he's summoned by Emperor Charles V. He's the Lord of Spain, Austria, Burgundy, Italy, Netherlands. He has to appear before a diet, a consortium, a group of religious scholars to defend, or they wanted him to recant his writings. And when asked to recant, he asked for one day to consider his heart before God. And so he was granted a day. The next day, on April 18, 1521, he said these famous words. He says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the popes or in councils alone, since it's well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. With these words, Protestantism was literally born. He is declaring the Bible to be the supreme authority. He is undermining the established authority of the church over all life in Europe. He was given 21 days to put his affairs in order. Returning uh, to Wittenberg, where he was expecting to die, he was, he was captured by friends that were disguised, taken to a castle of Frederick the Wise. And there he spent time finishing many of his writings and translating the German New Testament. It took him 11 weeks, and he translated the entire New Testament. That was incredible. Putting the, language in the, or putting the Bible in the language of the German people. He would not ultimately go the fate of many of these reformers. He would get married, uh, and he would continue to lead this reform um, until he died. Uh, there were other players besides Martin Luther. Uh, Zwingli was a reformer in Switzerland, and uh, he was one that actually began having some of these same reformational ideas around the same time of Luther. He denied the papacy. He denied the celibacy of priests. He denied this idea, you know, when you're a Catholic, during Lent you cannot eat meat. And so he established eating meat, on, or sorry, on Friday you could not eat meat. And so what came to be known as the affair of the sausages, he would break out sausages on Friday night just to show the Pope we can eat meat on Friday. Uh, John Calvin's another name. He's actually a second-generation reformer. He did live and he did minister in the time of Luther, but he was about half a generation behind. But, but he, was, um, uh, he was French, studying to be a lawyer, went into the priesthood, and then, of course, caught the winds of Reformation. And then he would ultimately lead a very successful ministry in Geneva, Switzerland. He wrote a major contribution as the uh, Christian Institutes, Institutes of the Christian Religion, still very readable today, very readable today. It's a, it's a great, great work. Uh, but what was unique about Calvin was he was a faithful pastor he exercised a faithful pastor for years. He would preach five times a week. He would visit the sick. He would write letters. He wrote commentaries on every book of the Bible except Song of Solomon and Revelation. And what he did was he took in immigrants and he took in refugees that were suffering persecution in other lands, particularly England and Scotland. In fact, John Knox, the leader of the Church of Scotland, was trained in Geneva under Calvin, spent time studying there, went back and helped lead the reform there. So you, you see the effect of this reform, reformation going all over. Now, I would be remiss if I were to say that there weren't some problems. There were some radical reformers that went a little bit beyond the pale. Martin Luther said some things. He should have known anti-Semitic statements. Um, 
John Calvin was involved in, in an event that would forever kind of stain his ministry to a degree. But I want you to remember, these are in, and there were the, the peasant revolts, thousands died. It, but I, I want you to see that this reformational time was a massive upheaval to life. We have no context in our day or age, or even in the history. It could be like a revolution, maybe. It literally upended the world. It was incredible. And it's hard to find balance. You know, the best historians are often writing about events after they happen. Luther's words are correct. He said, you know, we're like the drunk that gets on the horse and falls off to the right, and then we get back on the horse and we fall off to the left. It's hard to get balance when you're in the midst of such social, religious, cultural, and political and economic chaos. Okay, so, so what were they arguing for? Well, I want to explain briefly these five solas, right? Sola means alone. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, God's glory alone. The reformers didn't, didn't put their writings together in the form of five solas. They would probably have only referenced seriously the first three solas, uh, they spoke to the others, but, but later on, theologians tended to wrap up the theology of the Reformation with this expression, five solas. So I'm going to go through them, but over the next five weeks, we're going to take each sola to dig a little deep on, hey, this is what people have thought, this is what the Bible teaches, and here are the implications for our, our life. So the, so the first, and I want you to recognize, too, that they were not innovators here. They weren't innovators. They weren't coming up with new thoughts on Christianity. They weren't bringing a new faith. And John Calvin, in his institutes, he keeps quoting all the church fathers. These are the theologians of the first three, four hundred years. He's quoting them because he's saying, it's not new. This is what they said. This is what they advanced. We've just lost it in the thousand years. It's been buried over with church tradition and church teaching and teaching out of the magisterium and other superstitions and ritualistic behavior. Okay, so the first sola, sola scriptura, or scripture alone. At the time, the scriptures by the Roman Catholic Church was advanced as the word of God, but so also was the traditions of the church and the authority of the Pope. Remember now, nobody had Bibles, and if you had one, you couldn't read it. So there is no ability to even utilize the scriptures. You're, you're forced to trust if they say the scripture says that in the tradition of the church, then that would become the basis of authority over religious life. The reformers said, no, the scriptures alone are the sole authority of life and practice of the Christian faith. The scriptures alone are necessary. They're clear. They're sufficient for all things. You can learn by other means but they don't have the same degree of authority. They don't have the same degree to command change in our life as the scriptures do. James Boyce says it this way. He's a theologian that went to be with God in the last 25 years. He says, the Bible alone is our ultimate authority, not the Pope, not the church, not traditions of the church or church councils, still less personal intimations or subjective feelings, but scripture only. They would agree with that. And, and, and putting when you discover that the scriptures are the sole authority in the life of the believer, it naturally needs to be translated into the language of the people. So that fueled Luther's translation and into French and into English and so forth and so on. This is called the formal principle 
of the Reformation because it really gives birth to everything that follows. Now, this seems, you think, ah, it's 500 years old. This is very new stuff. This is still very relevant today. Karen and I were talking about this, and I totally forgotten until looking at this. You know, my grandmother, who was an Italian Catholic, and so it's my grandmother. I'm not 300 years old, so, so it's contemporary. My grandmother, when she was pregnant as a young wife, uh, as an Italian Catholic, the KKK came and they put a burning cross in her front yard. And it scared her to death. She ran down the stairs and tripped and fell and lost both the twins. This would be my aunt, their maternal, my aunt and uncle died. The Roman Catholic Church wouldn't bury those children in the cemetery because they weren't baptized. And they didn't tell her where they were buried. Can you imagine the hurt? That drove her to begin to read the Bible. What kind of God is this? And then she was rebuked for reading the Bible because she didn't have a priest to interpret it for her. I mean, this is just in my own lifetime. Well, I wasn't born, of course, yet, but my, my own grandmother, aunt and uncle. So, I mean, this is very, very relevant. And, and when, when the reformers said, no, the scriptures are the sole authority for the life of the saint, then all of a sudden preaching just emerged. There was a resurgence of preaching. As I said, they didn't preach. They would just celebrate the Mass. You'd come in, no pews, you'd stand there, you'd hear Latin, you'd leave. That was it. You did your veneration, you did your prayers, and you went on. And so preaching, and that's why there's a pulpit here and not an altar. Because the grace isn't coming from the distribution of communion. The grace is coming. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So so not only did, did preaching all of a sudden come on the fore, but so did Christian education. You see massive catechisms, four major catechisms written within the first hundred years after the Reformation. Why? To get into your hands so you can teach your children these are the things that the gospel teaches us about God. This is what the Bible teaches us. So it's huge. Scriptures alone. But let me move on to faith alone. Uh, Salvation comes by faith alone. So at the time the Reformation taught, or the uh, Reformed, sorry, Roman Catholic Church, uh, taught that salvation came through trusting in the finished work of God and, and acts of piety. The reformers recovered that, no, we're justified by faith alone. Faith alone. Now, we read in Romans chapter 1, uh, chapter 1 and 16 and 17, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the, for the Greek. For in it a righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the just, the righteous shall live by faith. That was a watershed moment for uh, Martin Luther. Because what he did, I explained at the beginning, he was terrified of the holiness of God. And we should be. I, I mean, the holiness of God, we sang about it, I come by the blood. I, we can't just appear to God. We've domesticated God. We've feminized God. He's very approachable, he's very kind, he's my buddy. But, but the God of the Scriptures is holy, and, and you cannot look upon him and live. So that's the kind of God that Martin Luther understood. Very biblical vision of God. And what would he do? How would he approach God, even with all this? You know, he even made a pilgrimage to Rome to try to kiss the steps that Jesus walked up. 
uh, to, to look at the skull of John the Baptist because that would take off 500 years from purgatory. He did all the things at the church and he could find no peace with God until his eyes landed on this passage. And then he realizes, notice in 17 it says, well, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. And then he says, for in it, in it, what is it? It's the gospel. For in it, a righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther understood that in the gospel, we see Christ. And Christ is the righteousness of God, loved by the Father, and yet he bears our sins. He's actively righteous and living a life of perfection that has no stain like ours does. It has no stain, and yet he is passively righteous in bearing our sin and bearing the wrath of God and suffering for us so that now we can approach God with confidence because a rescuer has come who is perfectly righteous. And when that, when his eyes open to the truth of the gospel, now he's free. Now he's forgiven because I can approach God. He is a loving God. He is merciful because he's given Christ for us. I just couldn't do it with my faith and my works. The just shall live by faith. Not the just shall live by faith and works. The just shall live by faith alone. That's how we approach God. It's an imputed righteousness. It's not an inherent righteousness that grace kind of helps me become holy. We do grow in holiness, but our standing before God is rooted in the work of Christ and not our works. See, they taught that the means of salvation through a Roman Catholic lens would be a progressive, engaging in a process where we become righteous. And Luther said, no, we're declared righteous. We're justified by the death and resurrection of Christ. Well, that's huge. Calvin said it's the hinge upon which Everything stands. It's called the material cause of the, res of the Reformation. This is the central part of recovery of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I, I still remember the, the day when I, my dad was, I think probably, uh, it was 2006, and um, I, he and I had talked for years and years and years about, you know, he was holding fast to, I believe, and you got to do these things, and uh, I remember sitting around the kitchen table, Carol reminded me of this, I didn't even share it in the first service because I, I forgot. Um, but my dad looked at me and we were going back into the nature of the gospel. And, and Christ alone saves. And it's his work alone that satisfies God. And he looked at me and goes, I get it. I finally get it. I get it. And, and it was like God just, poof, the eyes were open. And he got it. And that was four years before he died. I, I'm still so grateful for that day. He moved away from this idea of, I need you, God, but I've got to do all this stuff too. There is no boasting in Christ if you're adding to his work. When he said, it's finished, you just said, not yet. It didn't finish just yet because I've got to do this stuff. So that's a huge doctrine, the faith alone. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone. Uh, grace alone. We're saved by grace alone. At the time... The reformers confronted that salvation came by cooperation, that I'm going to engage in the sacramental means that the church offers, going to confession, getting married, uh, doing penance, doing pilgrimages, going to mass, that through those I'm getting grace to be saved. The reformers said no. No, the grace of God is sovereign. God moves with grace as God moves. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. 
He has compassion on whom he has compassion. But that we are saved by a grace that is sovereignly given outside of ourselves because of the vast mercy of God. That's how we're saved. It isn't something that you can secure, that you can kind of procure. I need some more grace. God is the giver of grace to save. Salvation is totally without human merit. And, and Martin Luther would say later in his life that the bondage of the will was his most important book. That is a book where he debates Erasmus, the humanist, on God being sovereign in the distribution of grace. And uh, because giving God the sovereignty of grace puts him as the point of all boasting. Okay, fourth, Christ alone. At the time, of course, in the church, if you were living in 1517, you would have gone to be, uh, you would go to God, but you would go to God knowing that God's grace is mediated through the sacraments and through the priests that you would have to appeal to God through these avenues. The Reformers argued that salvation is not dispensed through the church, through the saints, but through Christ alone. That Christ alone is God's mediation point to save the world. The church may be useful, I think it is. John Calvin would even say there's no salvation outside the church, but only because the church declares the message. But salvation comes through Christ. In 1 Timothy, we read a very clear statement, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. See, when it was mediated through the priests and through the sacraments, the Roman Catholic Church had all the control. They held the keys to forgiveness. They held the keys to truth. That if you wanted anything in relationship to God, you had to go to them. And, and Paul and the Reformers are, you know, um, advancing Paul's truth that, no, you go straight to Christ. There's one mediator between God and man. It's not that the church isn't useful. The leadership of the church is very useful. All those things. There's one mediator. We'll never be your mediator. And that, of course, is, is why the, the table now is not back there with priests at it ministering, and, and you're apart from it, and I'm standing between you and, and, the, and the sacrifice. The Catholic Church, the Every time the bread is broken, Christ is re-sacrificed for a new distribution of grace. But now the table's among you, and we don't call it an altar, it's a table. Because we come together to celebrate all that Christ has done for us. Last one, God's glory alone. At the time, of course, worship was centered on tradition, and popes, and canon law, and, and the reformers wanted to, to draw back and remind and move back to all of life is lived for God's glory. There is no human boasting, there is no human glorification that God has created all things, he sustains all things, and all things will redound to his glory. The reformers, out of this idea of God's glory being alone, um, being central to our worship, it is the priesthood of all believers, right? That, that, that the priest isn't doing something more valuable and more glorious than you if you're working with your children or if you're working doing carpentry or computers. You know, Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. And so all of life now is seen. Your lives are not to be separated in the, in the, between the sacred and the secular. All of your lives, all of your lives are lived for his glory because he's giving you life right now. You're his creation. You have been made in his image. He has sent his son to save you. He's drawing you back to himself. All of life is lift for his glory. So we will look at these in more detail over these next succeeding five weeks. Do we still need this reformation? 
I've talked to you now about the nature of the context of the Reformation, the players of it, the theology of it. Now, do we need this Reformation? I'd say yes, we do. Augustine, a church father of the 4th century, early 4th century, said that the church is always reforming. We're always wanting to make sure that the doctrine and the practice of the church is pure. I'm thankful that we're doing it in a different context. I could be burned at the stake for what I've been saying. You, you could be killed for listening and reading your Bibles 500 years ago. We don't have that problem now. I'm thankful for that. But we still need the Reformation because the Reformation reminds us that the gospel is the foundation of the church. What makes this church strong will not be the, the leadership per se. It's not going to be the fact that we all share a, a common socioeconomic background or an educational background or ethnic background. This church finds its health and unity as we make much of the gospel. It's the gospel that draws us together, our common love for him and need for him. But the Reformation also reminds us that the gospel can be lost by neglect or distortion. We can neglect the gospel. You know, familiarity breeds contempt. That's, I know the gospel. We'll never. The song of the redeemed in Revelation 5 is just thanking him for the gospel. We'll never tire of the gospel. Do you preach the gospel to yourselves? Do you teach it to your family? Neglecting the gospel can occur in a context where it has become old hat. Or we distort the gospel. We add things to the gospel. We need Jesus, but you know what? You also have to speak in tongues. And you need Jesus, you've got to read this translation of the Bible. You need Jesus, you've got to dress a certain way, ladies. You need Jesus in this and that. And, and the, you know, 52% of Protestants surveyed, Protestants surveyed say, you need faith in Christ and you need good works. Half of the Protestant church is going back to pre-Reformation theology. Reformation reminds us that the gospel is worth defending. A lot of people died, a lot of people died to, to recover this gospel. And, and you can read, you know, Desiring God and, and Gospel Coalition are two websites that are just filled with stuff about the Reformation, particularly in this month. So if you want more about the martyred, just the, the, the litany of names of people, children in England who died because they were found with Bibles, um, it's, it's worth defending. And we have much to defend against. Secularism, humanism, liberalism, multiculturalism, atheism. I mean, there's all kinds of things that will always threaten the gospel. Now, we don't fear that, but we do defend it, and we do speak for it. And then last is that the Reformation reminds us of the faithfulness of Jesus. I, I mean, the fact that uh, you know, we went through those thousand years without a bath, and then he, he recovers it through the works of these reformers. Uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and this October we can be reminded of how God moved in history and time and through failed men and women to recover this gospel and declare it for which we now get to enjoy. So let me just um, ask you to consider this I know it was a history lesson. I'm sorry if it was, uh, you know, sometimes you don't come to church and hear the Bible preached. That's generally a bad thing. So if it keeps happening, then revolt. But, uh, but, but I, I want to show you that history matters, and it matters to us today, because every generation needs to recover and walk in light of these truths that we went through.